0: listening to Rethinking Hunger, a podcast coordinating the food security fight through critical conversations. Our goal is to highlight the incredible people fighting to change our food system here in New Mexico and in the greater United States. I want you to get the full spectrum of folks that are in this fight. That means people coming to the table with different approaches and varying stakes. Among others, you'll be hearing from food nonprofit leaders, consumers, growers, providers, and policymakers. I'm your host, Sophia Rose. In this first episode, I'm here with Robert Ager. We talk about his journey from running nightclubs to starting the first central kitchen, the problematic nature of the charitable model in the nonprofit sector, and the power of food in bringing communities together. And how we can really harness that power to make change in our food system. Robert is the founder of the DC Central Kitchen, America's first community kitchen that works to rescue food from the city's hospitality businesses and outlying farms, feed hungry people, and provide culinary job training to underserved populations such as ex-convicts. The kitchen is a social enterprise Which means it operates its own revenue generating business, Fresh Start Catering, as well as the Campus Kitchens Project, which now coordinates similar recycling or meals programs in a total of 63 colleges or high school kitchens across the United States. His model has been replicated all over the country and the world. Robert's most recent venture, LA Kitchen, aimed at recovering locally sourced, imperfect fruits and vegetables to fuel a culinary job training program. This was for folks that are coming out of foster care, as well as older men and women returning from incarceration, in this mission to use intergenerational work as a tool for societal change. Robert has received many awards for his work, and he's widely recognized as a hunger hero. Without further ado, let's take a listen. So yeah, I was hoping maybe we could start with you just getting into your journey to the DC Central Kitchen, how you arrived there, and yeah, how you came up with this concept of Central Kitchens, really.
1: Uh, It got started for me, interestingly enough, um, as a young man, I really was always interested in being part of social change. Uh, I grew up in the 1960s or came of age. Um, And it's funny, uh, for a younger generation, you know, that can seem like ancient history, but It was so profound in that when I was becoming more aware of the world was also coincidentally when Malcolm X, uh, Dr. Kang, Robert Kennedy were assassinated. It's also when, you know, women like uh, uh, Barbara Jordan or Shirley Chisholm or Gloria Steinem were really pushing the boundaries on what women were allowed to do or expected to do. Um, It was when Cesar Chavez was challenging my, uh, farm uh, landowners in Southern California. So it was a very, very early, at a very early age, I was exposed to some really rad people. And that really at a very early age got me to kind of, almost for lack of a better word, self-baptize in that sense of this is the team I'm playing on. So, but instead of my original kind of um, choice for a uh, weapon, metaphorically, was music. Because I was fascinated at the same era how much music, theater, comedy would kind of disarm people who would, didn't want to talk about race, feminism, migrant farm workers, or any social issue. But if you put it to music or if you made it funny, people would relax enough to maybe hear a new idea. So it was like, cool, that's what I'll do. So I ran nightclubs as a young man. Didn't go to college and really focused on this idea to, I want to learn how to manage and run a, a big nightclub so that I can in turn create my own version of a nightclub. Now at the same time, uh, particularly in the mid 80s, homelessness really started to appear in a big way. And like everybody, I watched almost from an empathetic, but safe distance away from people as I walked down the street. And eventually I just decided I, I should do something about this or be engaged in some way. So I went out to serve people on the streets of Washington DC one night and happened to stumble um across the model the charitable model which was well-intended people going out in a truck taking food they had purchased to serve people who were standing outside and in the case of my first night they were standing outside in the rain so um and i've said many times since that was when i really saw the charitable model which is based more on the on the liberation uh, and more on the the redemption of the giver as opposed to the liberation of the receiver. And that really stuck with me, that sense of, I get it, it's historic, it's been around for the longest time, but it's, it's messed up. It's not designed to solve anything. And frankly, the power dynamic is really kind of ugly. So I just innocently proposed kind of a cross between what I had learned in, in the uh, nightclubs, which is a, we had a ton of food left over. We also had jobs, you know, so the idea was, why don't we start a cooking school? where we can collect food from restaurants, hotels, hospitals, farmers, bring it to a central kitchen. And again, we can offer a chance for people to be come off the streets and be part of the solution versus endless recipients of charity. And that led to the birth of the DC kitchen in 1989. Again, I really want to reiterate though, it wasn't what I wanted to do with my life, but what was fascinating and what's been kind of an interesting benchmark of a lot of my work ever since, has been how resistant the charitable world was to new ideas. Um, I went around to all the different food charities in DC saying, look, I run nightclubs, but here's a way you can feed more people better food for less money, but more importantly you can shorten the line of people outside waiting by the way you serve it. If you start a job training program, restaurants have jobs. And I was told by everybody, all the reasons it wouldn't work. And that was shocking to somebody who just wanted to help um, how resistant So a lot of the work I've done since has been about food and the power of food, but it's also um, been challenging the nonprofit sector to to grow up and be a little bit more of a player and not just a participant.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, that's really incredible. I think the thing about this model that really strikes me as being so ingenious is how simple it actually is to understand and how like all of these things just make sense when you're, you have food that would otherwise be wasted, and you have you know people that need to get fed, and then job training all in one fell swoop almost. Um, dude,
1: that's what I thought. I mean, I was really I thought, dude, this is a great idea. They're gonna love you. Right. You know, I, I I always laugh. It's like I expected to be like the volunteer of the year, and then I go back to run nightclubs. Yeah.
0: But again,
1: I was shocked by how many. Like I said. It was no, 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 no. And it's like, but again, this has been, my most recent outing was in Los Angeles. And I was saying, okay, here's an area where there's an almost unlimited supply of fresh fruits and vegetables. And you also have one of the largest concentration of older people in America. You also have one of the largest concentration of returning felons or returning citizens. You have one of the largest concentrations of uh, young men and women aging out of foster care clearly one of the largest concentrations of homeless people in america you see those as negatives i see them as assets and here's the model i'll build so i took everything i did in dc and actually took it up five or six times you know yet it was once again even though young sister i'm somewhat bona fide i still heard no um Mm -hmm. so that's both uh, both a warning and a challenge for those who follow. And that's why I dedicate so much of my time now to uh, assisting and empowering young people as best I can who have new ideas. But sometimes it can be um, challenging when you think, you know, smarter, faster, better, um, more liberating, um, you know, better outcomes for everybody, and yet still you'll hear no. Mm-hmm. So it just, again, for those in your audience who are listening, there is no magic moment where it suddenly gets easier and suddenly everyone says yes to you. Um, And in fact, if you're any good, you're never going to be settled with what you're doing and you're constantly going to innovate, which means you almost have to resign yourself to a constant battle to keep pushing forward.
0: Right. Right. And I think what you touched on a bit earlier is this, I love your approach in it being so open source. Like you seem to have this really distinct approach in that you want these these models you come up with to be taken on by others and they can be replicated which is what we're seeing happening with World Central Kitchen obviously it's been like become so popular it seems like in just the last years um so i guess maybe you could speak more to how that approach is important to have in the nonprofit world
1: well, you know, uh, for those in your audience who don't, can't see me or can't tell, I'm a white dude in America. So doors open for me. A, I was born with confidence, uh, you know, almost swagger, you know, that sense of what can't I do. Um, and that's rarely discussed. We talk a lot about privilege, but not about confidence. And that's what I think young women or women in general struggle with, that sense of I can do this, I'm worthy, uh, or, or I'll, you know, I'll be heard. Whereas when you're a white man, there's a sense of like, you know, what the f- I can do whatever I want. So that's, that's really important. And I've always a wanted to utilize that for greater good, but also, um, recognize that whatever I get, it's likely more because I'm a white dude in America than I'm f- smart. So I felt obligated to share. And a good example was when we open, I have always tried to apply a show person's flair. And I think sometimes nonprofits get lost thinking if, if I'm doing good, that's good enough. And sure, it's cool, but you got to recognize that we're, we're salespeople. And to a certain extent, we're not selling nonprofit, We're selling bravery. You know, I've always said I'm in the bravery business because it's my job to get regular citizens to be brave enough to acknowledge that um, in America, if you're poor, it doesn't mean you're lazy. If you're in prison, it doesn't mean you're guilty. Um, you know, There's a lot of assumptions that people want to hold on to because it keeps them safe. Um, another aspect was trying to help people be brave enough to say, yeah, you spent 20 years in jail, but that's not who you are, you know? So, but a big part of was, was also saying I had media, like when we opened up on George Bush senior's inauguration day in 1989, uh, it, you know, what media outlet in the world could resist, um, food being, uh, you know, donated from the inauguration of a president, that food going to homeless shelters the next day. And that was one of those moments where I realized, wow, what I've built has amazing visual power. I have a choice right here, right now. I can use that and kind of absorb all the light, or I can reflect light. And I chose to reflect and say, if, if a door opens for me, I'm going to make sure it opens for someone else. You know, there's somebody in, in Albuquerque, New Mexico, who's just as smart, if not smarter than I am, but they're never going to get the president of the United States to not only donate food, but as we, as we evolved, Presidents Clinton and Obama and their families came to volunteer. Again, who else gets that kind of opportunity? So the question was, am I gonna share or absorb? And that just has been baked in ever since, that idea of anything I get I'm gonna share and share openly.
0: Well, that's really incredible. I think that's like such an asset to the community here and I mean the whole country really. Um, maybe you can talk about a little bit about LA Kitchen and what you were doing with that project. I know you had a focus on this intergenerational gap between, um, I guess, millennials and boomers and you were, it seems like through that project, um, what was important was bridging that gap through the work and creating, more unity in the fight for um of just a better food system i guess
1: well you know it's funny you mentioned this because i never thought about it that way but i, I i'm really interested in history mm-hmm. but i'm also i'm a big believer in probability which means um you can't predict the future but with probability you can get a pretty good eye so for example women outlive and outnumber men so again probability means that means there will be more older women than older men. And as society faces globally an unprecedented aging phenomenon in which people will live 10, 15 years longer than their parents or grandparents, that means there's going to be more older women than men. What does that mean in a society that has um, sexism, economic disparity, and the beauty myth? And if those are problems, why wait for bad to happen, address it now? You know, start to chip away and erode at those problems before they become full-fledged cancers. But how can you use history metaphorically to do that? So let's go back to history for a second. Um, you know, where we live now, you and I in New Mexico, is the oldest food system in America. It's where the three sisters of corn, beans, and squash met the occupying Spanish armies' domesticated chickens, goats, and pigs. And this was where the first kind of intercontinental food system was kind of, or at least, the newest, the new food system in America, for better or worse. Um, but it also uh, it flashed forward to the 1940s, after World War II, and again we were talking about White Sands, and here is sadly where the bomb was uh, built and tested. And at the end of World War II, um, when an army came home, it was the first time in 10,000 years of agriculture in which an army came back from a war and didn't go back to the farm. Never before in history that ever happened. And this was all wrapped up in freedom, this sense of, oh my God, with new science and technology, I don't have to be what my parents were. Hallelujah, I don't have to be a farmer. I don't have to spend the rest of my life like my parents and grandparents and great grandparents. I can go and be whoever I want. It was a fascinating moment, but we left. Um, Not only the agro culture, but one of the most important bedrocks of that was the intergenerational codependency. You know, kids moved away from home and never came back. So as I look to the future, when I went to L.A., I was saying, dang, you know, it's not like I heart old people. It's just that I knew that if I if I am in the business of finding dynamic, innovative ways to feed people, I have to be aware of aging and I have to really rework my system for a new audience. Sadly, too many of the nonprofit sector just keep their model as it is and expect whoever the the new generation client, they're supposed to bend to the will of the nonprofit. Um, So I've watched as different groups of people have been at the metaphorical bottom rung of the American ladder. So whether it was homeless, whether it was um, people with AIDS, whether it was foster care felons, But each one of these groups is radically different. So I went to LA saying, here I can get almost an unlimited supply of fruits and vegetables, because the only way economically to feed this many people is gonna be plant forward. You know, the idea of meat three times a day, it's absolutely unaffordable. We can talk about sustainability or health another day, affordability 101, so it's like great. LA also happens to be a place where you have one of the greatest concentrations of global food profiles. You know, LA is home to the largest concentration of Iranians, Armenians, Koreans. So the idea of blending all of those um, cultures together to get these super flavorful new kind of combinations so that you could almost um, entice a generation of meat eaters over this divide into a plant forward. I mean, just so your audience knows, plant forward is more meat as part of the meal, not center of the plate um uh so anyway i went out there saying here's the model i'll have a a non-profit side that will get donated fruits and vegetables train an intergenerational really first of its kind intergenerational training where young people aging out of foster care would be matched with older men and women coming home from long-term incarceration that was unique in and of itself while they're learning, they will in turn guide volunteers and together we'll chop, dice, puree, juice, zest, cook everything down to its, its its like its nub, you know? And then we'll make juice and broth. I mean, we were rad in our aggressive, no waste uh, uh, vision. But we'd also have a for-profit business. We called it Strong Food. And the idea was we would, um, Employ graduates of the job training program who were finding it difficult to find jobs, primarily because of uh, because of ageism. You know, older men and women were just very difficult to find jobs. Uh, And we'd buy food at fair market wage, a fair market value, but it would be somewhat decreased because again it was imperfect. And then we'd apply and hopefully win contracts to do senior meals for LA, and that way, because we were a social enterprise. Um, our model isn't to reward stockholders with money. It's to reinvest money back in the community via wages or better prices to farmers or back into the nonprofit side. So it would be this insane model would spit food out of two ends, for-profit, nonprofit, but beautiful, healthy, plant-forward meals with an emphasis on seniors. Um, it would train people. It would engage elders. It was just perfect. But I ran into the corruption of city government and frankly and it's a a bigger subject the 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 grip that corporate food has on so many contracts for school food senior meals prison meals uh, military meals um and this is one of the things i do a lot now is try and help younger people um forward policy ideas that will make it easier for them if they choose to follow the same path uh, to actually get those contracts. Which ain't easy, but it's an era now where I think particularly now, you know what's wild, man, is COVID should should be revealing that chronic diet-related illness is, uh, is very much at the heart of why so many people are falling victim to COVID. Whether it's out in the pueblos of the nation, whether it's our elders, but so often it's aligned with diabetes, hypertension, and obesity, which are all chronic diet related illnesses. This should be the moment where federally, but all the way down to the city and state level, mayors, governors say, time out, time out, time out. We've seen what the standard American diet does, and it kills people. Whether it's the slow death of illness or it's because other illnesses like COVID prey on people who are um, suffering the byproducts of this diet. That diet. I want to explore something new. And we're not going to spend a dime of city or state money with companies that don't produce healthy meals that not only nourish people, but make their immune system super strong. That's the future. But you have to elect people who think that way.
0: Right. So does that then then tie into your stance on nonprofits being more political?
1: It very much does. I mean, the nonprofit sector, my, my um, sister, friend, is the feminized part of the American economy. 70% of nonprofits were founded by, led by, or driven by women volunteers. This is the feminized part of the American economy, yet it's the third biggest ploy- employer in America. Um, there is no profits without nonprofits, in that a town like Albuquerque or Gallup, you know, or Las Cruces or Santa Fe, without arts and culture, without communities of faith, without healthcare, education, clean air, clean water, food programs, it doesn't work. And until we liberate ourselves from the kind of charity trap in which we have to beg and scrape for money left over from corporate America. Oftentimes the same groups that cause the problems we're trying to mitigate with leftover food, leftover money, until we escape that and own our political power, we are servants in the field of America. Uh, and that, that I think is something I believe personally um, that this is the last vestige of the feminist movement, that it's only when the nonprofit sector uh, uh, takes its political and economic power that it, it earns through its daily work Keeping cities, states in our country alive and vibrant and healthy, uh, and all those other rich things that we do, um, as long as we accept our status, which we do. You know, it, it's sad because the way it's set up, as you probably know, our system relies on grants. And grants are oftentimes money made by white dudes given away by other white dudes. And they're not about to give women led businesses the authority or the power to challenge their authority. Um, And that's the trap we're in. So a part of what I want to do is push the nonprofit sector to challenge that tired, stale dogma that we are lesser than. But at the same time, I want to challenge mayors to recognize that if you look at Albuquerque or again, any of the cities I mentioned or any other city, the amount of money that nonprofits bring in from outside the city in through contracts or grants makes us one of the most dynamic sources of investment dollars. You know, again, if I'm a mayor of a town like Deming, you know, or uh, Bernalillo or what, any town, and somebody says, hey, you know what? you got a pot of gold sitting in your town, and it's these nonprofits. And I know you think that they are people who don't pay property taxes, even though we pay payroll taxes and a variety of others. But too many electeds see us as um, uh, that we don't produce anything. They think, oh, well, they're just, their charities, or they're a bunch of environmental or, or leftists who want you know us to raise taxes so they can do what they do. Versus the nonprofit sector needs to evolve. Maybe I can help by developing a strong partnership between my government and these nonprofits as well as businesses. And that's a radical way to think. So to a certain extent, whether I talk to young people about not having to accept the charitable model, whether I talk to um, young elected leaders about policy ideas that would, I think, strengthen the sector um, or whether I talk to sector leaders at the state or, or uh, uh, national level about their, their job is not to convene conferences every year or give us the latest fundraising tips, but help us be monsters of love that can liberate our towns.
0: Wow. Well, I think that's actually a really good segue into what I wanted to wrap up with, which is kind of thinking with you about the future in terms of how should we be rethinking hunger. And, um, you know, we already talked about sort of like this antiquated idea of charity that's that just lives on through in the nonprofit world. And I think you and I both know that food insecurity looks very different today, especially in the wake of COVID. Um, So um, can you speak to what this challenge of ending hunger and food insecurity looks like now?
1: Totally. Well, A, hunger's not about food. You know, it's about wage, it's about housing, it's about prison, it's about race. It's not about food. So A, as much as it's tempting to think, if I can just redirect food and get it to people, I've, I'm fighting hunger, you're feeding people and that's always gonna be righteous, but that's not ending hunger. So A, that's an important thing to, to recognize. So we have to use the power of food. Um, that's, that's something I'm very focused on. So secondly, um, we also have to acknowledge that over the past few decades, um, we've moved billions of pounds of food and hunger's only increased. So again, we have to, we can't keep thinking that if we just build bigger food banks or bigger pantries to distribute more pounds of food, that we've done our job. Third, we have to acknowledge that the nonprofit sector with love in our hearts have been poisoning poor people in the name of feeding poor people for decades by shoveling processed food down onto them. And we've actually given each other prizes for who moves the most weight you know, which has sadly been the barometer. Pounds moved has been the barometer for too many decades uh, for success in the in the hunger world. But what's interesting is we all know that there is a food culture in America now. People are really interested in food, all the way from some of the amazing groups here um, in, in New Mexico, Seeds of Sovereignty, which I'm fascinated by, that is really trying to um, take some oftentimes really badass radical steps towards getting people to recognize and talk more about food sovereignty and food roots. Um, you know, but that idea of, of acknowledging that, A, we have to only move healthy food from now on. Um, we have to really meet people where they're at. Um, but I'm really interested in, and one of the things that I, I must admit, there's two or three things that I encountered here in New Mexico that have really challenged me. Because, you know, the businesses I've, 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 I've built personally, have distributed more than 40 million meals. And that's an exciting number. Yet I've still relied on very typical food places like uh, uh, pantries or shelters or food programs who divided people by age, old people over here, young people over there, or tragically said, if you want to self-identify as poor and stand in my line, I'll give you some food. And I I, I just hate that. But two things happened. I went down to Belen, and Belen, a little bit south of Albuquerque, has a matanza, which is a very historic pig roast. And normally, when you feed people, the health department is kind of always understandably lurking around to make sure you're not inadvertently creating a situation where people could get sick. Yet here I was watching people literally in the open air, out in a field, under tents, butcher a whole hog, and then in hundred year old copper pots, in open flame pits, cook for a thousand—I mean, eleven thousand people—who came and paid a little bit of money to come in and be part of this giant pig roast. It's a very deeply rooted uh, thing in New Mexico, and the the uh, Chicano Latino culture. Um, but I was fascinated because it's like, wow, the health department kind of sits back and lets this happen. Yet if I said I want to feed a bunch of poor people, they wouldn't let me do that you know and conversely my great partner and ally jose andreas with world central kitchen if there was a giant earthquake here in new mexico or let's put it this different way out in out in the nation where uh world central kitchen is we can't do our traditional model of cooked meals because of covid but in many situations jose puts up tents and just starts cooking just starts cooking and everyone says oh my god world central kitchen we love you but again normally You can't do that kind of thing. The health department won't let you. So I've been challenging the governor who I really respect, but saying, why is it that we haven't declared a hunger emergency? I mean, if the dam broke or the earth shook, you declare an emergency and you'd allow certain latitude to hunger groups to address the problem. Admit it. We got it. We got an emergency. This is the equivalent of an earthquake or a volcano or whatever you want to call it. Let's, loosen a little bit of the, 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 the grip on what we can or can't do to respond to this. Simultaneously in Los Ríos where I live, um, um, there's a firehouse, I can look out, I'm looking out the window and I can see it right now. There's a kitchen in that firehouse. There's firehouses in every community in New Mexico. And firehouses are a place where um, people who might be undocumented aren't threatened, like a fire, uh, like a police station might be, you know, or another place. Um, addicts don't fear fire. In fact, addicts love fire people because they're also the ones that show up with Narcan and, and bump them back to life. So firehouses are these strangely safe zones. And we had a fiesta here in, in uh, Los Cerrillos, and my wife and sister and I served the meals and Cerrillos is a town of about 300 people. And we have like every town in New Mexico, we got our tweakers, we got our, you know, gun tote and don't tread on me libertarians. We have our old people. And here was a moment where everyone in this wacky little town were eating side by side. And I looked at my wife and it's like, oh my God, we should be fighting hunger with community. You know, not with food, with community. How can we get people to sit down side by side and share a meal? And it's funny before COVID, I actually talked with people in the governor's office saying, you know, for a very small amount of money, you could not only have on a weekly basis somewhere in New Mexico, a big beautiful community fiesta style meal. But coincidentally, the traditional meals of New Mexico, posole, um, green chili stew, tamales, even Frito pie are really affordable. So you can actually feed a large amount of people with a very small amount of money by genuflecting to the deep culinary roots of New Mexico. In fact, when COVID hit, um, I partnered with the community college here in Santa Fe and we produced 55,000 meals, which we distributed all over the greater Santa Fe County area, but also on multiple Pueblos. But again, virtually every meal was a traditional New Mexican meal. And we got it out the door for about a buck 25 a meal, which is pretty low in the food business. So there's something here that has opened a doorway for me. You know, that idea of it isn't about how many meals you prepare, um, although it's important to have volume. And it isn't necessarily just about the health of the meal, although it's essential to be healthy. It's more about the community you create around the meal itself. To me, that's the great opportunity, particularly after the election, where we saw in New Mexico, as well as every state, this bitter divide. Uh, And what better place to maybe bridge some of those gaps than over a beautiful, big, steaming hot, green chili stew.
0: That's so beautiful. Thank you for sharing. I really love the idea of food being this like powerful equalizer for people and bringing people from all walks of life together to sit down at the same table.
1: Well, you know, there's a deeper hunger in America and that's people want to belong. They want to be part of something. And I think that's what the hunger movement has missed. You know, they think if we just feed people or if we just supply meals, it's like there's a deeper hunger and that's where the real power is that people are willing to put down things, oftentimes their armor metaphorically, you know, this is my faith, this is my politics. Um, and they can put that down. Um, and I think food is one of those rare, rare, rare things that can get people to do that. So I think that's something I'm interested in is the idea of how can we start to create more, remember the, the do you remember when you were a kid, the the, the fable of stone soup?
0: Yeah, totally. Everyone I threw something in, yeah
1: boom, boom, shakalaka, yeah. you know, that idea of everybody's got a role to play. Yeah. Imagine how many elders there are in these little villages, the abuelas. Imagine mm-hmm. a, a kind of if the governor said, I want an army of older women. Let's, let's go back to that matriarchal society that was at the beating heart of the Pueblo culture that was, defines New Mexico. Let's re-explore that role of women. And that power that we have. everyone in everyone in the tribe has a role to play. Um, and that idea of everyone has something to give. To me, that's the stone soup, not just of the meal, but the community around the meal. Mm-hmm.
0: From the New Mexico Out of School Time Network, this has been Rethinking Hunger. Robert Ager is now semi retired, but he continues to speak at universities and nonprofit conferences, and he has a blog on his website at www.robertager.org. The music for this podcast was made by Adam DeGraff, and you can follow him on his website at adamviolin.com. If you liked this episode and want to subscribe to our podcast, or if you want to learn more about the issue of food insecurity, visit our website at nmost.org. That's
1: N-M-O-S-T dot org. Thanks for listening.